Good morning. We are delighted that you have decided to spend another Sabbath with us as we continue to discuss the book of Ephesians. Today, we get to probably the most well-known passage in that whole epistle. We're going to talk about the house codes, as is commonly referred to in this section. Before we do that, though, we want to invite you to pray with us. God, we just want to thank you so much because you have woven us together. And as you weave us, you create these connections, connections that are meaningful. And we pray that those connections that we have with you may be lived out in the lives that we share with one another. Pray you bless our conversation today as well as our viewers in your name. Amen. Again, we want to thank you for your comments, your questions, your concerns. Uh, you know where to reach us, mmendez at luc.org or j-o-o-h at luc.org. Or you can leave us a line in your comments or you can comment on our YouTube page if you are being blessed by what we do. Remember, we always uh, love to partner with you. And so you can uh, go on our website, louc.org, and click on Give. Uh, consider supporting our media ministry that puts all this content out for you to enjoy. I'm very excited because we get to talk about marriage. And I've got uh, Pastor Linda here with me, who is also my wife. And so, Linda, how are you today? What is What is going on in your neck of the woods? I'm doing well. I'm excited to be able to do this part of the lesson with you. I think it should be interesting to go over it together. Um, yeah, but I'm excited. We have a lot going on at Year Reach, like always. And so this summer has been very busy. We have Excel that's about to start. Uh, you guys have seen us outside of church recruiting. And um, yeah, we're excited. Great. A lot of excitement in uh, that department. Also a lot of excitement in our camp meeting as kind of camp meeting starts to wind down here. We've got two more weeks of camp meeting. And so if you're in the area, we again want to just invite you to consider attending one of our services. You're going to be blessed. Wonderful music, a look of revelation. Uh, last Friday, we had a wonderful conversation on revelation and the book of Ezekiel by Gustavo Assis, who's a PhD uh, from Boston University. Next week, we've got a panel dealing with all the questions you have on Revelation, but we're mm. too afraid to ask. So consider joining our programming. We've got a lot going on, huh? That's a lot going on. I've really enjoyed um, studying the book of Revelation this whole month of camp meeting. Obviously, Friday nights are my favorites. I get to put the boys to bed and tune in online and um, watch the programming. And so that's been delightful to see Revelation from a different standpoint. Mm. 
it's it's been it's been incredible it's been incredible to inhabit these conversations um i want to invite all of you if you haven't checked out jeffrey rosario's presentation not from last friday last friday was fantastic but two fridays ago it is really really worthwhile watching you can mm. find that on our youtube page a lot of you have been asking how do we get there um, you go L-O-U-C slash YouTube, you get on our YouTube page, and instead of clicking on the tab for videos, you click on the tab where it says live. And you'll see everything from Friday. So hopefully that answers some of the questions that I've received over the past two weeks. Ephesians chapter 5, uh, Paul begins uh, this particular passage trying to ground us in love, and Pastor Philip and I talked about that this, last week. And now... We are moved into what these uh, scholars call the house codes. Mm -hmm. uh, Roman relationships and Roman society was built on this very into intricate system of codes. And so they tried to codify relationships, Lynn. At the, high, at the head of the hierarchy was the patrifamilias, the man of the house, followed them by the domina or the, the free Roman... Uh, wife of the patrifamilias, then the kids, and also, obviously, you would have the slaves. Um, and Roman relationships kind of were codified in this way because for Rome, what was very important was, was the city or the state, the empire. And so they felt that if you could codify the relationships and attain <clears throat> order within your nuclear family, then you could have order throughout the empire. And here Paul takes some of that language, and like he's been doing throughout uh, the book of Ephesians, he he's decides to switch it, to flip it on his head, and introduces this concept that would have been foreign in the Greco-Roman world, which is the idea of submission. Submission. At I don't want to say that's a foreign thing to me either, but <laughs> sometimes it is hard to read this and um, to apply it to our times now because it would seem foreign, right, with what we've studied and our level of education and everything else that we would just submit. But um, it was foreign to them then, but they adapted. And so, you know we adapt now. I think even though the word submit sometimes seems scary, um, when you really dive into the chapter and you realize what he's talking about, you, you realize that it doesn't have to be that scary, the word submission, really. Mm -hmm. what, what comes with it um, is a big benefit. Mm -hmm. In, in marriage as in our communities. Yeah, absolutely. I think you're referring to probably the most oft-quoted verse in this chapter, which Correct. is verse 22. Um, Wives, submit yourselves to, the hus to your husbands as you do to the Lord. Uh, for the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is Savior. And a lot of people have taken that particular passage those two verses, 522 and 523, out of context. And they've created this, uh, this theology, we call it headship theology. And now uh, I think we need to be 
uh, open and honest and candid about who we are. We read this text with our own biases. We are both uh, egalitarian in our understanding of Scripture. That is to say that we believe that God created men and women to hold equal position and equal authority. There are uh, friends and brethren within the Christian church that are complementarian, which believe that God created us for specific functions. And one of those functions is that the man, the man is to lead the house and the church. And so we've had, I, I know, a lot of debate, uh, it particularly in our own faith tradition, but in traditions around Christianity about if the man is the head of the church, then what role does the woman have? And this has been a text that is often been used to promote this idea of headship, uh, that the man is the head of the household, just as Christ is the head of, of the church. I think the problem, though, is that we pull that text out of context without grounding it in what Paul is doing in his overall argument. Mm -hmm. So we know, for example, that chapter 5 begins by asking several questions. It, the first uh, half of chapter 5 talks about this idea of being children of light and of being obedient and about submitting your own desires, your own will for the, for the good of the community out of love. And then he moves on to say, and the way you gauge if you are on mission or you're not having mission drift is you, you look at the fruit. Mm. And so for Paul, he's very utilitarian, isn't he? In the sense that he says, let's see what structures you're creating. Uh, and if there are structures that align with what God has in plan for his church, then those structures are going to be successful. And so we measure them by the fruit. And I know, for example, there's been times in 15 years of ministry where I've benefited greatly from having colleagues uh, that are women, uh, God-inspired and spiritually powerful women that have allowed me to see the whole of, of the Gospel Commission from a different perspective. So I think it's important to ground the argument in the overall narrative and to kind of see that for Paul, the measure, or as we say in English, the proof, the proof is in the pudding. Mm -hmm. If the fruit is good, then the process is good. Correct. I mean, as you mentioned a bit, he starts chapter five by saying, Christ God forgave you, follow God's example, right? Mm -hmm. So um, we often forget that he's using the idea of marriage and the structure of marriage as an example of what he wants us to be mm. in Christ, mm. right? So he's trying to find something that the people can relate to. Mm. And I think the closest thing that you can relate to in having a relationship with Christ or with your community members in church is marriage, mm. right? Because the person that you are the closest to, you should be the closest to, is your spouse. Mm. And that person challenges you in, in different ways. And it is there that you discover how to love patiently, kindly, respectfully, mm -hmm. and all these other things that we should be bringing into our relationship with our community mm. and into our relationship with Christ, right? And so I think that's one of the things that we often forget that Paul's using marriage as an example, as a base to say, listen, 
you guys are doing marriage, right? And and it's a strong um, thing in this culture. So let's use that as an example mm -hmm. of the type of relationships that you guys should have with mm -hmm. Christ and with each other. And that's what I love about Paul, Lynn. I love the fact that Paul is grounded in the language of his time. So he uses these structures and these frameworks that already existed. We started by talking about these house codes that every citizen of uh, the Roman world would have recognized. And so he uses that so that the language is similar, so that uh, we, say, we say in scholarly circles, he collapses the distance between himself and the society that mm -hmm. he's looking at. But he doesn't just collapse the distance. He takes these ideas and recasts them. So not only does chapter 5 begin by saying the proof is in the pudding. Verse 21, that is almost never read, talks not just about the submission that the wife is to have to the husband. It talks about the submission that the husband is to have for the wife. And so... We almost always forget that Paul's conversation on marriage always begins with this idea of mutual submission. And submission is going to look different, uh, I think Paul is trying to say, but it starts with this principle of mutual submission. I, again, to, to use this analogy where, where Paul is uh, pushing us to, I found Within, and there's been a lot of research done within Christian communities and Christian families. And this isn't a knock on our complementarian brothers and sisters, but it's, I think, a reality that has to be wrestled with. That faith communities that have a very an overtly patriarchal structure to them are often more abusive and the research is out there. So you guys can, can look at a Christianity today. Um, Barna, there's, there's been a lot of research done on this particular issue that overtly patriarchal uh, religious structures tend to be more abusive than more egalitarian structures. And I think that's because the moment that you begin to see your partner as less than, uh, it's very easy then to, to begin to justify abuse. Correct. And Ellen G. White talks about that too in The Adventist Home. She says, in light of what we've just read, why is this following counsel so important to remember? It says, if the husband is a coarse, rough, boisterous, egotistical, harsh, and overbearing man, let him never utter the word that the husband is the head of the mm. house and the head of the wife and that she must submit to him in everything, for he is not the Lord, and he is not the husband in the true significance of the term. Mm. And as I read that, I was like, wow. Preach it, Auntie. Yes, preach it. Because often, like you said, we, we take that word submission to mean that the woman has to be less than, and that therefore... Um, sometimes the husbands can make decisions um, that are maybe to benefit more them than the whole of the household or mm. the whole of the wife. And and that's not what what Paul is saying here. He's, you know, he's mainly using it as a reference. He starts, you know, the instructions of the household with submit to one another mm -hmm. out of reverence for Christ. And so... 
you know, he's breaking it down. He's saying, everyone submit to each other. And now I'm going to talk about the husbands, the wives, you know, the, the children, the slaves and so forth. Mm -hmm. But his overall narrative for that was that, you know, as church members, as a body of Christ, we could learn how to submit mm. to each other. Mm. You know, if as your wife, as the person that is to love you the most, if I can't submit to your needs, to your wants, if I can't take them into consideration, how will I do that for someone in my community? Mm. And I think we often, right, we often in the church, um, particularly groups that are that are really really highly conservative we tend to say well we can't let society into the church uh we can't let culture and uh phil and i if you uh, if you watched last week had a pretty long conversation on culture and I, I think culture does two things culture does sometimes push us forward uh but the ultimate goal of culture is to push us forward for culture's own benefits. So mm -hmm. even the even the advances that we make morally and ethically, um, I think that the fact that women now have a much higher uh, voice and are much more visible in the marketplace of culture ought to then push the church to say, what are we doing wrong? And I think women are also now, and we've, we've seen this over the past couple of years, uh, we've heard voices of women uh, from the Me Too movement uh, to uh, stories of women that have, that have been harassed and to stories of women that continue to remind us of pay inequality, uh, to stories of women that continue to remind us that even the language we use sometimes is... Uh, is weighted uh, gender-based towards uh, towards benefiting men. Um, I know in our in our pastoral stuff we struggle with this because we have the the voice of sage women that continue to remind us that God uh, asks us for for diversity. And so I think culture is showing us um, the that to have women active in and being visible in the marketplace of life is is both a positive thing and is a, is a needed thing now what i find really fascinating is that the first section here that that we always quote would have not been shocking to people reading it in the first century wives submit yourselves to your husband that's kind of the M.O. That's the Sitzin Lieben, as they would say. Those, that's, that's life. Yeah. Uh, submit your husbands in everything. That's life. It's not like Paul is giving us this new um, high ethical or moral thing to, that we ought to aspire to. Women understood, even, even free Roman women that were citizens and wealthy, uh, that offered patronage to the church understood that their position within Greco-Roman society was subservient to that of the husband. So Paul isn't saying anything new. But then, here's where Paul is revolutionary. Husbands, love your wives ah, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And 
it's I, I almost want to invite us, Lynn, to go back and try to hear these words in their original setting. Here you're reading this in Ephesus, and Paul starts, women, submit yourselves to your husbands in everything. And people would have said, duh. Yeah, that's life. And then he would have said, but wait a second, lest you forget, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And that would have been really shocking because the responsibility of the man towards his wife and his family in the Roman world was minimal. In an honor-shame society, it was just to safeguard the honor of the family and the name of the family. Love and all of these other things were kind of these, these ideas that um, weren't really prevalent. It was, like we said, it was an honor-shame society. Yeah, I don't... Um... You remember our one of your mentors, Charles Teal, when we would be reading the Bible in class and we would come to something shocking or that he mm. thought was shocking, he would stop and he would do mm -hmm. make a noise. Er? I, I can imagine the people of that time hearing these words and going, er? like, what is happening right now? This is not, you know, um, this is not what we're used to being told um, that we have to love our wives just as Christ have loved the church to give ourselves up to, for her, to her. Um, I just, I can't imagine men receiving that in that time mm -hmm. as something that was like, oh yeah, that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Let's do that. You know, especially when you put it into context of what that means, it almost seems like there's more responsibility mm -hmm. on the husband more so than the wife, mm -hmm. right? Because if you are if you are to love your wife as Christ loved the church, the implications are that of that are huge, right? Mm. How did Christ love the church? Well, he died. Mm -hmm. He gave his life up for the church. Therefore, that means that he Christ put himself last. Mm. And and so Paul's telling the man here, he's telling husbands like, "Listen, you have to give yourself up." For the sake of your wife mm. and that you know when you put it in that context i can imagine it must have been something hard for them to hear mm -hmm. yeah yeah and that's i think <laughs> that's i think what, what would have stopped everyone in their tracks because yes paul is trying to collapse the distance between society and the church and yes society can drive us forward in some moments, and we've talked about some instances where women have become more prevalent. But I think now the church's responsibility, just like back then, was to be revolutionary in telling society that's not enough. That's not our drive to oppress and to subjugate one another mm -hmm. is so present in us that what Paul is actually doing is he's inviting the powerful person in the struck in this relationship in and within the context of the Greco-Roman world like much like it is today the reality is there is a disparity between men and women and so Paul is saying, you that are privileged, you that are in power, your responsibility far supersedes 
the responsibility of the other party. And so a lot of times when we read this simply from a complementarian perspective and we're trying to tell women, hey, you need to submit yourself, we, we forget, I think, what you so artfully said, which is the responsibility for the man is higher because the man has more privilege. He can leverage more influence. And because of that, uh, Paul isn't talking about egalitarianism. Paul is talking about equity, mm-hmm. where he says, women fulfill the rela- the relationship or the picture, the idea that society has for you. Men, because you have more influence, you have to go above and beyond. Because in the end, Paul is not just is looking for equity. And sometimes we forget that. We think that Uh, equality is what's needed. And really, Paul is looking for equity. Paul is looking for a way to balance the scales. And that requires that those of us um, who have more privilege uh, are being asked to bear a higher burden of responsibility. And that can be more privilege with gender. So we'll speak to people who enter a room. And because they're men, they immediately we immediately have a different uh, reality right we our voice is more heard um we are seen uh you talk about this a lot of the time when a man is outspoken um a man is referred to as decisive when a woman a leader. Is, is a lead good leader when a woman is outspoken she's seen as problematic and so we need to be conscientious about the fact that when we enter a room there is a power dynamic already right. at play and paul is saying those of you who have more responsibility because of their gender i'm going to say it friends because of their race and ethnicity it's not this not there are some ethn- ethnicities that carry more uh, in, that carry more power inherently than others because of their socioeconomic status, because of their educational level. The people that have more influence are asked to bear a higher burden of responsibility in these social relationships that we inhabit within the church. And that's why Paul is using the structure of marriage to tell the people, hey, listen, like, we're not doing it right. Mm. And as a, if we are to grow as a church, if, if we are to be fruitful as a church, we need to stop seeing the structure of the church as we have seen it so far. Because Christ has come and he's changed mm. all that, right? And so he, he, he makes all these assimilations of, of marriage so that as a church we can understand. I mean, he... He loves, it says Christ loved the church as his bride, mm-hmm. right? And so if a, it, as a husband, you're, you are to love me as your bride. That means that the way that you do things, if you are to love me as you love Christ and I'm your bride and, you know, the way that you do things towards me are not going to be in a way to make me feel less mm. than, right? It will make the things that you do, the decisions that you make, will be done to uplift me Mm. to um and if we are to take that same model and apply it to the church then how do i do that to our church members 
to the people in my community? Do I make decisions from a selfish point Mm. of view, from a, well, no, this is what I believe, or do we make them from a standpoint of what does Christ want Mm. of me? And if Christ loved the church so much that he gave its life, then what should I do as a a follower of Mm. Christ, right? Not only in my marriage, but in my church. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, And it all starts, I think, with mutual submission. Correct. And we need to remember something that Paul does all the time. Paul is going to take us from what we know to what what we don't know, from what is to what ought to be. So this is a clear-cut example of this. He does this, by the way, all the other times. If you go to chapter 6, he's going to talk about uh, children, right? And the expectation for the children is lower. It's simply descriptive. Mm -hmm. And then he says, fathers, and he places this expectation on fathers that wouldn't have been had in the Greco-Roman world, from the known, from what is, to what ought to be. Then he talks about slaves, what Mm -hmm. is, and he gives a description about what what slavery was in the Greco-Roman world. Uh, But then he says, and masters. And so the expectation for masters is is completely new. And so I want us to remember what Paul is doing here. He creates these doublings, these three sets of doublings, where the relationship by de facto is unequal. Within the Greco-Roman world, husbands, wives, parent, fathers, children, masters, slaves. And he, he, the first section, he descri- he's descriptive. This is what it is. This is how it works. But lest you forget, we're not just Roman society. We're, some, we're called to be something better. So you, as having more power, more inherent power within the relationship. This is your expectation. And so he pushes us from what is to the ideal. So the ideal is for for husbands because again, throughout history, we have had more inherent influence to do something. And you mentioned it. We are to love our spouses like Christ loved the church. Uh, Richard Niebuhr, who you know I love to read, talks about the ideal ethical standard for the Christian. And he says that the ideal ethical standard for the Christian is almost unreachable. You know, we think that the ideal ethical standard is love your neighbor as you love yourself. Mm-hmm. Niebuhr says, no, no. Jesus calls us to even a higher ideal. Love each other as I have loved you. Mm-hmm. And the way in which Christ loved us was completely selfless. He, selfless. he put the needs of his, th- those whom he loved above his own needs. And so when we ask, okay, well, what is this idea? What, how does Christ love the church? This is the same kind of Niebuhr ethical standard that is so hard to achieve because basically he's telling husbands in a highly patriarchal world, you are to privilege your wife above yourself. And let's face it, that doesn't come nat that didn't come natural to Greeks and Romans 2000 years ago it still doesn't come natural to us in a world in which women comprise the majority of the labor force women are still paid uh, less than men and there are some expectations right when we had when we had our boys 
I wasn't expected to stay home. You were expected to stay home. And so you had to juggle your career, your call, uh, motherhood, um, the, the, the how, keeping up with the house. And the question often is, well, why do men uh, kind of in their careers, uh, why do men always uh, tend to climb the, the career ladder quicker? Well, the reason is because we're not expected to juggle all these things. When we, I always say, when I take my, the, the boys out, I people look at me like I'm a superhero. <laughs> yes. If I go and do um, and do a grocery run with the boys, people look at me like I'm the I'm the greatest thing on earth. And so those expectations, lest we forget, are very much real today. Yeah, or or even, you know, um, we've had this happen within our own families when it's will you ask Miguel to babysit the kids? And my response is always, why would he babysit his kids? Mm. They are his kids. He shouldn't have to babysit them. Mm. Those are his responsibilities. Mm. You know, we often place, like you said, these different expectations mm -hmm. and um, on what the roles should be. And Paul's coming and he's just basically almost flattening that curve, mm -hmm. right? That, that mm -hmm. imbalance. He's saying, listen, it's always been like this government over households, men over women, he's saying, guess what? We, you're all now mm. on the same level, mm. on the same curve. There is no one or the other. You know, it's almost like without having to say, he's saying it, mm -hmm. right? It, it's submit, wives submit to your, to your husbands. And then the next verse, like you said, he's saying, but husbands love your wives. So he's saying, that that you've thought really has meant submit, be greater than, actually means, husband, it's your responsibility to put your wife above yourself, mm. to love her as you would love yourself, if not more. And so he's flipping these, these paradigms that people thought and saying, wait a second, what you thought was should not be, right? Yeah. Um, and... And sometimes that's really hard for us, even nowadays, that we think this should be like this, right? This is what it should be. This is what we've always done. And But if we look back to what Christ is calling us to do, what he's done through the gospel is say, what should or was is not mm -hmm. what I am. And, and it's hard to sometimes live a life in Christ that way, to always remind yourself, yes, I know that this is how things have always been done, but what does Christ call me to do? Mm. What does Christ require of me? You know, with our children, we do the same thing. We we quote these, right? The Bible says you obey your parent. If our if our children talk back, we think they're being disrespectful, but we never stop to think as parents what our responsibility to our children are, right? To make them individuals that are independent, that are um, outspoken, that stand up for what is wrong. What is right. For what is right. Because we think, no, they have to be respectful. Mm. They have to be quiet. They have to be. But I mean, 
from beginning to end. He is flipping all those narratives. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's almost when how when Jesus walks into the church and he flips the tables. That's kind of what Paul is, mm. is doing here. Yeah, he, um, I, which is why I find it so shocking that this passage is used uh, or has been traditionally used to keep women in in a state of servitude or, or submission or subjugation because the expectation, I mean, just look at the text, friends. Women get the wife, the responsibility of the wife is comprised in verses 22, 23, and 24. Three verses Paul dedicates. Mm -hmm. And again, as we said before, these verses reflect the uh, common day attitudes that people had towards uh, a marital relationship. He spends double that time addressing the men with, yeah. with concepts that would have been completely, completely foreign to them. Why? Because Paul has from the beginning of this epistle pushed us into the realization that the cross creates a new reality. And I think that's sometimes the problem, not only with, with Adventism, but with Christianity in general, that we say the cross does something, but we think that what the cross does is something in the future. Mm -hmm. And I think what Paul has been saying throughout Ephesians, which as we've said every week, is an epistle on ecclesiology. This is how the church is supposed to run, is pushing the church into the realization that the cross creates this new reality that you start dwelling in today. And the first piece of that reality is that there is a leveling off of the these relationships that's where where there is sometimes an imbalance in power there you said it I, I i love the way you said it there's a flattening the cross provides this flattening and i think often um we uh we we realize that the flattening doesn't mean we use, we lose our uniqueness. And I think this is really where the church has something to add into the discourse of relationships um, and of individuals and the relationship, the discourse in a society that thankfully is moving, at least when it comes to gender equality. It looks like we're making some strides. Mm -hmm. And that is that we're still different. You as a woman are different than I am. You have different needs. You have... Uh, different ways of looking at the world. You have a different paradigm under which you function. We're not trying to reinforce the stereotypes, but we are recognizing that there are some differences. And it's so funny that Paul ends this section uh, with this last invitation. It says, each one of you must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. So this respect that I think all of us men uh, tend to crave. Uh, we, for some reason, and, and we'll have to ask God when we when we get to heaven. Uh, men, and it's always hard to talk in general terms because there's always the exception to the rule. But by and large, men struggle with insecurity. I think with a different type of insecurity. So men need this these this constant reinforcement about our proficiency and our ability. Mm -hmm. This is just who we are. 
Um, and so this this thing that we crave, right? This admiration and these these words of affirmation as it pertains to our ability and our proficiency. Paul says, "Yeah, women, wives, give that to your husbands." But before you do that, husbands love your wives. And it's so interesting because I think women struggle with insecurity as well. It just is made manifest in different ways. Okay. And so women, by and large, again, it's really, really treacherous to start, to start talking in general terms. But by and large, women need words of affirmation that... Um, that allow the that allow them to feel wanted accepted loved nurtured and so paul says hey if you want uh adulation and if you want affirmation as it pertains to your proficiency men make sure you are loving your wife before and so it's really interesting because paul does push for egalitarianism paul pushes for equity paul pushes for this flattening out but Paul also says, as differently gendered people, we have different <clears throat> inherent needs. And marriage is this beautiful lab laboratory in which you can explore what those different needs are, and then you can fulfill them. I mean, and he, and he kind of um, touches that, right? He says, in this way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. Mm. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, people have never hated their own bodies, but they feed and care for them, just mm -hmm. as Christ does the church. And so um, in that way, he's saying, hey, listen, mm -hmm. just as you want mm -hmm. to be taken care of and, and you do what you need to to make yourself, you know, be a healthy person and, and feel good about yourself. You need to do the same mm -hmm. for your spouse. Mm -hmm. You need to do the same for the person that, you mm -hmm. know you've you've entered this mm -hmm. journey with you can't you know um expect someone to feed and mm -hmm. care for you if you are not caring and feeding yeah. into somebody else yeah. um yeah it's man, and this is two thousand years ago and again i think one of the problems that we have in our current society and thankfully there are people that are starting to speak about this is the objectification of women um, and often there's the conversation, well, and there was a conversation even when I was in school, uh, to the little, the discourse to the little girls was, or to the teen, the teenage girls was make sure you dress modestly because you don't want to tempt, uh, the young men. And as I'm reading Paul now, I kind of think that what Paul would say is, as a man, as a, as a man of God, it is your responsibility. It is not the responsibility of the, of the woman to keep, uh, to keep you on the straight and narrow. It is your responsibility. And I think a lot of times, um, one, of, one of the things that I, that I kind of bemoan, uh, the great strides that we've made in gender relationships is that women are are taught uh, that they can do anything and everything, but they're also taught that their body is the biggest commodity they have, mm -hmm. and 
you kind of, and, and that body is to be displayed for the objectification and the gratification of men. And I really would, would wish that as Christian men, we, we would have a conversation with women that, that sounded a little like this. First off, God gives you freedom to dress in whatever way you want. I have the responsibility for what my eyes do and what my mind does as a man. Secondly, and probably more importantly, you as a woman are not an object for my, ple for my viewing pleasure. You are not an object for me to use and to discard. I am to love you as I love myself. Now, that doesn't mean that we're, that we're trying, to, that men are trying to legislate uh, on women or what, uh, or what women's behavior ought to be. I'm simply saying for us, that needs to be the standard. And that's neat. that needs to be a conversation that we have. How do we as Christian men, as Christian husbands, as Christian fathers, stop and, and speak into this, uh, this narrative that we say, well, we're doing great in you know, society in pursuing uh, gender equality, yet women are still being objectified. Uh, turn on the TV and look at a commercial. Um, you'll see the woman announcing, you'll see women usually announcing uh, products in, in a way mm -hmm. that uh, scantily dressed. Um, with, usually they don't speak. Sometimes you can't even see their faces. And that makes it really easy to objectify. And those, I think, those commercials, those ad, those ad campaigns are created uh, for the benefit of men. Uh, this is what the, what society thinks we want. And I think the church then has an opportunity to speak and to say, look, we as men, because we have understood that Paul's invitation to us is to love women the same way we love ourselves, we cannot participate in dehumanization or in the object objectification of women. Yeah, I mean, you, you know, 2,000 years ago, Paul's talking about that, right? Mm. And he's trying to say, society might do mm -hmm. things this way. The government might do mm -hmm. things this way. But as a body of Christ, mm -hmm. he is calling you to do things mm. this way. Mm. And, and sometimes it is, you know, sad that 2,000 years later, our society is not only doing the same, mm. but as a body of Christ, we are still operating under the mm. same expectations that um, women are less than, children mm. are less than, mm. and that every decision that we should make in our church or in our community should be one that men get to make. Mm. And that, you know, and it's almost as if we read this and, and, and we miss, mm. we miss what Paul's trying to tell us that... You know, when you commit to Christ, when you get to know Christ, you no longer see people or your spouse or the people that you love the most as less than mm -hmm. your your mentality shifts from what is best for me to what would be best for them. Mm. And that's not always easy to do right? Obviously you and I are married. 
there are moments where I have to admit your wants and your needs are not always the way that I want to make decisions based on. But I know that in the end, right, you and I have come to an understanding of of knowing that in the end, if we always choose what is best for us, we're always going to be on the losing end. Mm. And so I think it's important to remember that as a church, as spouses, what Christ is calling us to do is to put others first, Mm. put their needs first, just like he put ours first. Mm. So let's take this from from the realm of ideas. I think we've we've made a a really powerful case for uh, Ephesians 5 actually being about equity. Let's let's now take it to the reality of the world mm. we we live in. Uh, so you and I are married and we I, I wanted girls. Uh, we God gave us boys. And so we're trying we're trying to to raise our boys up in in a way, you know, with a mentality and with an ideology where the relationships that they have um, are relationships that are that are going to honor God. Um, there's a study that that I read that really, really I, I, I found disheartening. It was a study that that was done in Spain. Um, there's a lot of in, in Spanish. Uh, Spanish language is much more gendered uh, mm-hmm. than than English language, and um, there was kind of this this study that was done with preschool kids uh, that the kids were both little boys and little girls were asked uh, to paint a picture, a mental image about something, about somebody that was successful and brilliant and did um, wonderful things and was really a change agent in their lives and without giving them the gender. And by and large, both boys and girls um, ended up <laughs> in their mind imagining that the gender of this person, this imaginary being, was male. Mm. Um, We also have this reality, you know, our two boys are very different temperament-wise. And um, I was was walking uh, in in the store at Target, which, which, you know, our little one loves to go to, (laughs) and I just saw these two different aisles, right, of, of toys, and our little one, immediately gravitated to, towards the guns, right? All the boy stuff, the traditional, uh, typical boy, things that you would associate with a boy. And so uh, in that lane, I just, I, I just started looking at the toys and it was all about exploring and doing stuff outside of the house and blah, blah, blah. The next aisle, it was, a, it was, a, it was an aisle intended for little girls and all of the stuff there was, you know, stuff that you would do inside the house. So very early on, kind of the almost subconscious discourse that was happening was, boys, your role is outside of the house. Girls, your role is in the house. Mm-hmm. Um, we're equal, but we're not really equal. And you're, I think, you're a, you're a mother and a woman in a male-dominated uh Care career, pastoral ministry is still sadly male dominated. Um, you've talked a lot, a little bit about your expectations. How do we, how do we continue to challenge these subconscious assumptions that we make 
about ourselves, both as both as men and women, both as boys and girls, where you can say, hey, in Christ, it's okay. Um, Christ, Christ can call a, a, whim, a woman to be a prophet, Ellen White, uh, to be a pastor, to be a doctor, to be a scientist, to be an explorer. Uh, the role of women isn't just in the house. If you want to play with, um, you know, basketballs or uh, astronaut suits, that's okay. And the role of uh, boys doesn't need to be just outside of the house. If you want to play with, you know, a vacuum cleaner, that's fine. Uh, because Christ has called you for a particular purpose, and that purpose goes beyond your gender. How, mm. how do you like? How do you deal with with that kind of internal discourse? That I'm sure, because we've talked about this a lot, happens uh, happens in your life. Well, I think for you and I, it's one of the things that we've worked really hard to do within our own home, right? Especially having two boys. You know, when we had Micah. Um, I remember his favorite color when he was little. I mean, until he was like five, it was purple. I think you just embarrassed him. Wow. And people, <laughs> and people would tell him, that's a girl color. Mm -hmm. Pick another color. And, you know, even sadly within our very close circles, mm -hmm. it, it was that, well, no, you can't like that. Those are girl toys. And, you know, and, and very early on, you and I made that conscious decision to say, no, no, no we're not going to um, raise our boys with this mentality of this is for girls, this is for boys. If he likes the color purple, we're going to mm -hmm. celebrate the fact that he loves the color purple because children mature, they grow, they change. And sure enough, his color now at 12 is not purple. Mm. Um, and it, by the way, it's not that it would be bad if it is purple. Correct. Right? No, but... But I think because we allowed him, we've mm. allowed both of our boys to have this um, safe place at home where we've taught them that not just mom cooks and washes the dishes and folds the clothes and irons, um, but that they see dad also, you know, iron clothes and and feed them when mom's at work. Not cooking though. And dad doesn't. Dad, no. dad does not cook. He Notice can't. I said feed them. Yeah, yes, I feed them, <laughs> but I do not cook. Um, and things like that. You know, we've made a conscious effort, and it's a constant work on both of our ends because you know that there's days that I come home, and I feel extremely guilty that I wasn't able to cook a home cooked meal every night at home because that's what I was taught that as a woman I had to do and it's been hard for me to let go of those things I mean there's you know times where it's like hey I need you to pick up the kids because I'm working late and it's like well I'm working late and and there's this well and we've learned to compromise and I think our boys have seen that you know one of the greatest things for me was a couple of weeks ago somebody asked Micah what he wanted to be when he grew up and he said I want to be a pastor and he said, but I want to be a pastor like my mom. Mm. And it wasn't that he was saying, not like you, but I think in our home, we've created an atmosphere where we've shown our boys that both of our ministries are equal and impactful and that your work is not greater. My work is not greater and that they can 
do it whichever way. And I think for us nowadays, the way we change that is by beginning with the people that we have mm. closest to us, right? That's what he's calling the people of the church then. Mm. He's saying, start with your spouses, start with your children. And so I think that's how we start changing the paradigm. That's that's a great that's a great word, Lynn. And and to to understand that the paradigms are are there to to to, to function until they don't function anymore. Correct. Um, within the hierarchy of pastoral ministry, kind of what I do is more traditional, and it also consciously or subconsciously, uh, it's it it has more weight because it's more visible, right? And I, I was just so so pleased when when our son said, I want to be like mom, uh, because I think we're trying to say that the flattening out has to be has to be modeled in the church. And that's going to require a shift in the things in our in our perspectives of what we think is valuable. Well, we are way out of time, friends. I'm going to pray, and we are going to see you next week. Join with me in a word of prayer. God, thank you for Paul. Thank you for pushing us beyond society's vision for us, for something even, even greater. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the cross that levels all playing fields. We pray in your name. Amen. Have a wonderful week. Go out and love someone. If you are a man and cannot cook like me, maybe order something good for, for your spouse uh, today. We'll see you next week.